Section 48 of Deerbrook. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Deerbrook by Harriet Martineau. Section 48. Lightsome Days. Part 1. Before he returned home in the morning, Hope went to Dr. Levitt's to report of what he had seen and heard on Mr. Gray's premises in the course of the night. He was persuaded that several persons had been about the yards, and he had seen a light appearing and disappearing among the shrubs which grew thick in the rear of the house. Sidney and he had examined the premises this morning, in company with Mr. Gray's clerk, and they had found the flower-beds trampled and drops of tallow from a candle which had probably been taken out of a lantern, and ashes from tobacco-pipes scattered under the lee of a pile of logs. Nothing was missed from the yards. It was probable that they were the resort of persons who had been plundering elsewhere, but the danger from fire was so great, and the unpleasantness of having such night neighbours so extreme, that the gentlemen agreed that no time must be lost in providing a watch which would keep the premises clear of intruders. The dog, which had by some means been cajoled out of his duty, must be replaced by a more faithful one, and Dr. Levitt was disposed to establish a patrol in the village. The astonishment of both was great when Margaret appeared, early as it was, with her story. It was the faint hope of recovering her ring which brought her thus early to the magistrates. Her brother was satisfied to stay and listen, when he found that Hester knew as yet nothing of the matter. It was a clear case that the Greys must find some other guardian for the nights that Mr. Gray spent from home and Dr. Levitt said that no man was justified in leaving his family unprotected for a single night in such times as these. He spoke with the deepest concern of the state of the neighbourhood this winter, and of his own inability to preserve security by his influence either as clergyman or magistrate. The fact was, he said, that neither law nor gospel could deter men from crime when pressed by want, and hardened against all other claims by those of their starving families. Such times had never been known within his remembrance, and the guardians of the public peace and safety were almost as much at their wit's end as the sickly and savage population they had to control. He must to-day consult with as many of his brother magistrates as he could reach, as to what could be done for the general security and relief. As Hope and Margaret returned home to breakfast, they agreed that their little household was more free to discharge their duties of such a time than most of their neighbours of their own rank could possibly be. They had now little or nothing of which they could be robbed. It was difficult to conceive how they could be further injured. They might now, wholly free from fear and self-regards, devote themselves to forgive and serve their neighbours. Such emancipation from care is as the blessing of poverty, even more than of wealth was theirs, and, as a great blessing in the midst of a very tolerable evil, they felt it. Margaret laughed as she asked Edward if he could spare a few pence to buy horn-spoons in the village, as all the silver ones were gone. Hester was not at all too much alarmed or disturbed when she missed her watch, and heard what had happened. She was chiefly vexed that she had slept through it all. It seemed so ridiculous that a master of the house should be safe at a distance, and the mistress comfortably asleep during such an event 
leaving it to sister, maid, and guest to bear all the terror of it. Dr. Levitt's absence of mind did not interfere with the activity of his heart, or with his penetration in cases where the hearts of others were concerned. He perceived that the lost turquoise was, from some cause, inestimable to Margaret, and he spared no pains to recover it. But weeks passed on without any tidings of it. Margaret told herself that she must give up this, as she had given up so much else, with as much cheerfulness as she could, but she missed her ring every hour of the day. Christmas came, and the expected contest took place around the rent of the corner-house. Mr. Rowland showed his lady the bank-notes on the morning of quarter-day, and then immediately and secretly sent them back. Mrs. Rowland had never been so sorry to see bank-notes, yet she would have been so angry at their being returned, that her husband concealed the fact from her. Within an hour the money was in Mr. Rowland's hand again, with a request that he should desist from pressing favours upon those who could not but consider them as pecuniary obligation, and not as justice. Mr. Rowland sighed, turned the key to his desk upon the money, and set forth to the corner-house, to see whether no repairs were wanted, whether there was nothing that he could do as landlord to promote the comfort and security of his excellent tenants. Christmas came, and Morris found she could not leave her young ladies while the days were so very short. She would receive no wages after Christmas, and she would take care that she cost them next to nothing, but she could not be easy to go till brighter days, days externally brighter at least were at hand, nor till the baby was a little less tender, and had shown beyond dispute that he was likely to be a stout little fellow. She could not think of Miss Margaret getting up quite in the dark to light the fire. It was a dismal time to begin such a new sort of work. Margaret privately explained to her that these little circumstances brought no discouragement to persons who undertake such labour with sufficient motive, and Morris admitted this. She saw the difference between the case of a poor girl first going to service, who trembles half the night at the idea of her mistress's displeasure if she should not happen to wake in time, such poor girl undertaking service for maintenance, and by no means from love in either party towards the other, Morris saw the difference between the morning waking to such a service, and Margaret's being called from her bed by love of those whom she was going to serve through the day, and by an exhilarating sense of honour and duty. Morris saw that, while to the solitary dependent every accessory of cheerfulness is necessary to make her willingly leave her rest, the early sunshine through her window, and the morning songs of birds, it mattered little to Margaret under what circumstances she went about her business, whether in darkness or in light, in keen frost or genial warmth. She had the strength of will, in whose glow all the disgust, all the meanness, all the hardship of the most sordid occupations is consumed, leaving unimpaired the dignity and delight of toil. Margaret saw and fully admitted all this, and yet she stayed on until the end of January. By that time her friends were not satisfied to have her remain any longer. It was necessary that she should now earn money, and she had an opportunity of earning what she needed at Birmingham. The time was come when Morris must go. The family had their sorrow all to themselves that dismal evening, for not a soul in Deerbrook except Maria knew that Morris was going at all. 
Maria had known all along, and it had been settled that Maria should occupy Morris's room after it was vacated, as often as she felt nervous and lonely in her lodging. But she was not aware of the precise day when the separation of these old and dear friends was to take place. So they mourned Morris as privately as she had long grieved over their adversity. Mr. Hope meant to drive Morris to Buckley himself, and to see her into the coach for Birmingham, and he had borrowed Mr. Gray's gig for the purpose. He had been urged by Mr. Gray not to think of returning that night, had desired his wife and sister not to expect him, and had engaged a neighbour to sleep in the house. The sisters might well look forward to a sad evening, and their hearts were heavy when the gig came to the door, when they were fortifying Morris with a parting glass of wine, and wrapping her up with warm things which were to come back with her master, and expressing their heart's sorrow by the tenderness by which they melted the very soul of poor Morris. She could not speak, she could resist nothing. She took all they offered to comfort herself with, from having neither heart nor voice to refuse. Morris never gave way to tears, but she was as solemn as if she were going to execution. The baby alone was insensible to her gravity. He laughed in her face when she took him into her arms for the last time. A seasonable laugh it was, for it relieved his mother of some slight superstitious dread which was stealing upon her, as she witnessed the solemnity of Morris's farewell to him. They all spoke of her return to them, but no one felt that there was any comfort in so vague a hope amidst the sadness of the present certainty. As Hester and Margaret stood out on the steps to watch the gig till the last moment, a few flakes of snow were driven against their faces. They feared Morris would have a dreary journey, and this was not the pleasantest thought to carry with them into the house. While Hester nursed her infant by the fire, Margaret went round the house to see what there was to, for her to do to-night. It moved her to find how thoughtfully everything was done. Busy as Morris had been, with a thousand little affairs and preparations, every part of the house was left in the completest order. The very blinds of the chambers were drawn down, and a fire was laid in every grate in case it was wanted. The tea-tray was set in the pantry, and not a plate left from dinner unwashed. Margaret felt and said how badly she would supply the place of Morris's hands, to say nothing of their loss of her head and heart. She sighed her thankfulness to her old friend, that she was already at liberty to sit down beside her sister, with actually nothing on the, her hands to be done before tea-time. It was always a holiday to Margaret when she could sit by at leisure, as the morning and the evening dressing and undressing of the baby went on. Hester would never entrust the business to her or to any one, but it was the next best thing to watch the pranks of the little fellow, and the play between him and his mother, and then to see the fun subside into drowsiness, and be lost in that exquisite spectacle, the quiet sleep of an infant. When he was this evening laid in his basket, and all was unusually still, from there being no one but themselves in the house, and the snow having by this time fallen thickly outside, Margaret said to her sister, "'If I remember rightly, it is just a twelve months since you warned me how wretched marriage was. Just a year, is it not?' "'Is it possible?' said Hester, withdrawing her eyes from her infant. 
I wish I could have foreseen then how soon I might remind you of this. Is it possible that I said so? And of all marriage? Of all love and all marriage. I remember it distinctly. You have but too much reason to remember it, love. But how thankless, how wicked of me to ever say so. We all, perhaps, say some wretched things which dwell on other people's minds, long after we have forgotten them ourselves. It is one of the acts we shall waken up to as sins, perhaps every one of us, whenever we become qualified to review our lives dispassionately. As sins, no doubt, for the pain does not die with the utterance, and to give pain needlessly, and to give lasting pain, is surely a sin. We are none of us guiltless, but I am glad you said this particular thing, dreadful as it was to hear it. It has caused me a great deal of thought within the year, and now it makes us both aware how much happier we are than we were then. We? Yes, all of us. I rather shrink from measuring states of fortune and of mind, as they are at one time against those of another, but it is impossible to recall that warning of yours, and be unaware how differently we have cause to think and speak now. I felt at the time that it was too late for us to complain of love and of marriage. The die was then cast for us all. It is much better to feel now that those complaints were the expression of passing pain long since over. I rejoice to hear you say this for yourself, Margaret, though I own I should scarcely have expected it. And yet no one is more aware than I that it is a blessing to love, a blessing still, whatever may be the woe that must come with the love. It is a blessing to live for another, to feel far more deeply than the most selfish being on earth ever felt for himself. I know that it is better to have felt this disinterested attachment to another, even in the midst of storms of passion hidden in the heart, and of pangs from disappointment, than to live on in the very best peace of those who have never loved. Yet, knowing this, I have been cowardly for you, Margaret, and at one time sank under my own troubles. Any one who loved as I did should have been braver. I should have been more willing, both for you and for myself, to meet the suffering which belongs to the exercise of all the highest and best part of our nature. But I was unworthy then of the benignant discipline appointed to me, and at the moment I doubt not I should have preferred if the choice had been offered to me, the safety and quiet of a passionless existence, to the glorious exercise which has been graciously appointed me against my will. I do try now, Margaret, to be thankful that you have had some of this exercise and discipline, but I have not faith enough. My thanks are all up in grief before I have done, grief that you have the struggle and the sorrow, without the support and the full return which has been granted to me. You need not grieve much for me. I have not only had the full return you speak of, but I have it still. It cannot be spoken or written, or even indulged, but I know it exists. And therefore am I happier than I was last year. How foolish it is, she continued, as if thinking aloud. How perfectly childish to set our hearts on what we call happiness, on any arrangement of circumstances, either in our minds or our fortunes so little as we know. How you and I should have dreaded this night and to-morrow, 
if they could have been foreshown to us a little while ago, how we would have shrunk from sitting down under a cloud of sorrow which appears to have settled upon this house. Now this evening has come. The evening of Morris's going away, and everything else so dreary. No servant, no money, no prospect, careful economy at home, ill will abroad, the times bad, the future all blank, we too sitting here alone with the snow falling without, and our hearts aching with parting with Morris. We must come back to that principal grief. How dismal all this would have looked, if we could have seen it in a fairy glass at Birmingham long ago. And yet I would not change this very evening for any we ever spent in Birmingham, when we were exceedingly proud of being very happy. Nor I. This is life and to live. To live with the whole soul and mind and strength is enough. It is not often that I have the strength to feel this, and the courage to say it. But to-night I have both. And in time we may be strong enough to pray that this child may truly and wholly live, may live in every capacity of his being, whatever suffering may be the condition of such life. But it requires some courage to pray so for him. He looks so unfit for anything but ease at present. For anything but feeding and sleeping and laughing in our faces. Did you ever see an infant sleep so softly? Are not those wheels passing? Yes, surely I heard wheels rolling over the snow. She was right. In five minutes more, Margaret had to open the door to her brother. Hope had arrived at Blickley only just in time to drive Morris up to the door of the Birmingham coach, and put her in as the guard was blowing his horn. Mr. Gray's horse had gone badly, and they had been full late in setting off. He had not liked the prospect of staying where he was till morning, and had resolved to bid defiance to footpads and return. So he stepped into the coffee-room, and read the papers while the horse was feeding, and came home as quickly after as he could. As he was safe, all the three were glad he had done so, and the more that, for once, Edward seemed sad. They made a bright fire and gave him tea, but their household offices did not seem to cheer him as usual. Hester asked at length whether he had heard any bad news. Only public news. The papers are full of everything that is dismal. The epidemic is spreading frightfully. It is a most serious affair. The people you meet in the streets at Blickley look as if they have had the plague raging in the town. They say the funerals have never ceased passing through the streets all this week. And really the churchyard I saw seemed full of new graves. I believe the case is little better in any town in the kingdom. And the villages? The villages follow, of course, with difference, according to their circumstances. None will be worse than this place, when once the fever appears among us. I would not say so anywhere but by our own fireside, because everything should be done to encourage the people instead of frightening them. But indeed it is difficult to imagine a place better prepared for destruction than our pretty villages just now. From the extreme poverty of most of the people and their ignorance, which renders them unfit to take any rational care of themselves. You say, whenever the fever comes, do you think it must certainly come? Yes, and I have had some suspicions within a day or two that it is here already. I must see Walcott to-morrow, and learn what he has discovered in his practice. 
Mr. Walcott, will not Dr. Levitt do as well? I must see Dr. Levitt too, to consult about some means of cleansing and drying the worst of the houses in the village, but it is quite necessary that I should have some conversation with Walcott about the methods of treatment of this dreadful disease. If he is not glad of an opportunity of consulting with a brother in the profession, he ought to be, and I have no doubt he will be, for he will very soon have as much upon him as any head and hands in the world could manage. Cannot you let him come to you for advice and assistance when he wants it? I must not wait for that. He is young, and, as we all imagine, not overwise, and a dozen of our poor neighbours might die before he became aware of as much as I know to-night about this epidemic. No, love, my dignity must give way to the safety of our neighbours. Depend upon it, Walcott will be glad enough to hear what I have to say, if not to-morrow, by next week at the furthest. So soon? What makes you say next week? I judge partly from the rate of progress of the fever elsewhere, and partly from the present state of health in Deerbrook. There are other reasons, too. I have seen some birds of ill omen on the wing hitherward this evening. What can you mean? I mean fortune-tellers. Are you not aware that in seasons of plague, of the epidemics of our times, as well as the plagues of former days, conjurers and fortune-tellers and quacks appear, as a sort of heralds of the disease? They are not really so, for the disease, in fact, precedes them, but they show themselves so immediately on its arrival, and usually before its presence is acknowledged, that they often have been thought to bring it. They have early information of its existence in any place, and they come to take advantage of the first panic of its inhabitants, when there are enough who are ignorant to make the speculation a good one. I saw two parties of these people trooping hither, and we shall have heard something of their prophecies, and of a fever case or two, before this time to-morrow, I have little doubt. "'It is this prospect which has made you sad,' said Hester. "'No, my dear, not that alone. But do not let us talk about being sad. What does it matter?' "'Yes, do let us talk about it,' said Margaret. "'If, as I suspect, you are sad for us, it is about Morris's going away, is it not?' "'About many things.' It is impossible to be at all times unaffected by such changes as have come upon us. I cannot always forget what my profession was once to me. For honour, for occupation, and for income, I confidently reckoned on bringing you both to a home full of comfort. Never were women so cherished as I meant you should be. Now it has ended in your little incomes being almost our only resource and in your being deprived of your old friend Morris, some years before her time. I can hardly endure to think of to-morrow. "'And do you really call this the end?' asked Margaret. "'Do you consider our destiny fixed for evermore?' "'As far as you and I are concerned, love,' said Hester to him, "'I could almost wish that this were the end. I feel as if it almost any change would be for the worse.' I mean, supposing you not to look as you do now, but as you have always been till now. Oh, Edward, I am so happy. End of section 48, part 1